Welcome the pulpit. Here it is. Thank you. You may be seated. He is risen. Let's pray this morning. God, we do ask for ears to hear and for eyes to see what it is that you would offer and plant in us this morning. Through Christ our Lord, everyone said, amen. Well, I love movies. Think about your favorite movie or your favorite story. Maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a book. And think about how many times you've listened to it. If it's your favorite movie, chances are you've seen it more than once. If it's your favorite book, chances are you've read it more than once. Or if you're an audiobook person, you've listened to it more than once. And this is because stories take us someplace. I spent a lot of time studying stories because I'm an English literature major, which is a wonderful degree to get if you don't really want a job. (laughs) Because it offers you very little useful skills. But I loved my time studying stories, studying the narrative arc, studying plot progression, and the way that characters, if it's a good story, should be different characters by the end of the story. There should be some sort of inciting event along the narrative that if your character is not different by the end of it, that means they're either dead or it's a bad story. So stories are intended to take us somewhere. They're intended to give us a destination, to kind of guide us along some sort of journey. And Jesus understood the value of a good story. Which leads us this morning to our gospel text, which is the parable of the sower. And if you've spent any time in church, um, you've surely heard this story and heard people talk about this story. And parables, they're these short, didactic stories that point us to some larger truth. It's believed that parables were actually inspired by this ancient Hebrew practice called midrash. Can you say midrash? Which is this ancient practice of comparison. So parables have been around for a long time. But the parables of Jesus, they're unique in that they are intended to give us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. How this whole thing works and functions and moves. So in Matthew's gospel, the parable of the sower is at the front end of a number of other parables. The parable of the weeds among the wheat, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast. And many of the parables of Jesus were agricultural references simply because this is how people in the first century understood how the world worked. There was plowing and planting and watering and harvest. And sometimes you got the right amount of sun and sometimes you got too much sun. Sometimes you got the right amount of rain and sometimes you didn't get enough rain or you got too much rain and it washed your crops out. And sometimes birds and animals came and ate your crop, and other times weeds infested them and killed them off. So these kinds of cycles and seasons were all part of this first century life. 
And so here we find Jesus speaking to these very practices. A sower went out to sow, and some seeds fell on the path. And the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. And when they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth, and the sun rose, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth a harvest. So I think there are a number of ways that we can approach this parable. The first way is by approaching it with a sort of universal lens to see how this applies to all of us at all times. And it's by approaching it with this sort of you win some, you lose some narrative. And this is a true narrative because this is oftentimes what life is like. Are you with me? Oftentimes, you win some and you lose some. And by putting the win some at the end, it gives this parable a sort of encouraging, hopeful arc that even when things haven't gone your way, even though you've had seasons of failure and frustration, there are still seasons of growth and success. So we're all experiencing some level of loss and some level of gain, and oftentimes this is happening in us simultaneously. In this way, the parable is whispering to the desire to understand whether life is good and worthwhile in spite of so much loss and death. And for reasons we can't quite understand, it seems there has to be loss in order to have gain. See, we're looking at this parable in Matthew's gospel, but when you look at it in Mark's gospel, it falls in this section about telling and hearing parables. It's in this section about having and losing and finding and being found. It speaks to people who have repeatedly lost their way and lost much along the way, but for whom now there is reason for a renewed faith. So in spite of so much frustration and loss and natural disasters and things that are outside of our control, there is always a new harvest that provides food and seed for next season's sowing. The second way I think we can approach this parable is through this lens of evangelizing and conversion. And when we try to interpret the parable this way, through this lens, it almost takes on a kind of Don't waste your time on those kinds of people vibe. Are you with me? It's almost like saying, if you really want to do the Lord's work, invest in people that are open and receptive to the word. And the problem here is that this is in direct opposition to the attitude of the sower who is scattering seeds to whoever would receive it. So in this way, we ought to resemble the sower. So when we're tempted to only invest in the people that can offer us something, when we think we shouldn't waste our time on them or those people or those kinds of people, when we don't support initiatives or organizations that aren't explicitly in the business of converting people before caring for them. See, this is why sanctuary We support organizations like Charity Water that simply provide clean water to people who don't have access to clean drinking water. 
This is why we do things like the backpack initiative that you're going to hear more about today, offering backpacks and school supplies and simple necessities to kids here in Tulsa that would otherwise not have a backpack and not have school supplies and not have the basic necessities. This is why in the fall, we're going to do our turkey blitz, where we're providing Thanksgiving meals to families that would otherwise not have Thanksgiving meals. Because on some level, we are simply called to care for and love people. And still, I think there's another way to interpret this parable. And this is where I want to spend the majority of our time today. That's through the lens of cultivating and caring for the soil in our own souls. I think we would do well to consider that these four types of soil, the road, the rocks, the thorns, and the good soil, these are not seasons that we all go through. Rather, we are all of these soils at all times. See, roads are used for working, for moving, for coming and going, for traveling. Roads take you places. And God is the God of the Sabbath. God is the God who calls you to sit down and rest a while. God is the God who calls you to rest for a minute, who calls you to be present here and now. This is wisdom, to learn how to be here and to live in a vital way in which you are radically present. Not worrying about where you're going or where you've been, but to be here and to be present and to be now. And rocks are stubborn. Rocks are rigid. Rocks are ungracious. And God is a God of grace and mercy. Thorns are used to pierce and to self-protect. And God calls us to lay down our very lives to abandon any instinct of guarding and self-protecting so that our lives can be broken open and poured out for the world. So what if the work that we must do is tilling out the rocks of unforgiveness? What if the work we must do is plucking the thorns of intolerance and self-protection from our hearts? What if the work we must do is clearing out the hard roads so that new paths forward are made possible, paths that are full of life. But when we read this in the 21st century, there's an aspect of this story that we don't often consider, and that's this, the passage of time. We look and we read the text or we hear the text, and we see this sort of instantaneous resolution for the seeds that are planted, the birds eat them up, the sun causes them to wither, the thorns choke them out, or they grow and they flourish and they produce a harvest. But in reality, these processes take time. The work of a seed in the soil, the sprouting and the growing, spreading its roots, navigating obstacles, this isn't something that happens in a moment or several moments, but over a lifetime of moments. So what if Jesus' use of the seeds as a symbol of the soul, I couldn't squeeze any more alliteration into that sentence if I wanted to. <laughs> what if Jesus is talking about seeds as a way of talking about the soul, and it's not just for the sake of cultural reference, not just because this is how people in the first century understood how the world worked. What if 
This is what caring for our hearts and our souls and the way of following Jesus actually looks like, requiring a certain level of cultivation and care and attention, but also patience and hope and trust. See, what we see in the ancient world is that so many of the metaphors for the spirit are agricultural metaphors. Because again, this is how people understood the world worked. This is the, wor- the world in which they lived. So we come back to these cycles of planting and harvesting and sowing and seeds and seasons of summer and winter and fall and spring. And then there's that quiet moment. Right after you've taken the seed and you've dug the trench and you've buried that seed and covered it with earth and dirt and watered it. And for a while, sometimes a long time, you don't see anything. All you know is that a seed has been planted. And if you keep watering it, and if you keep tending to it, and if the external forces that are outside of your control align in such a way, hopefully at some point, someday, something sprouts out of the earth. So we have both the active work of the digging and the tilling and the plowing, and we also have patience and hope and trust. But then there's things like wind and rain and sun and animals and more rain, but not too much rain, but not too little rain, and more sun, but not too much sun. So our ancestors in these agricultural settings, they were deeply in tune with the reality that even their food, their source of life, came from the earth, and the earth has its own timetable. The forces, the powers that be, work on a timetable all their own. So what they did was put the work in, cultivated the soil, they tend to it, they care for it, but also held these things with open hands because in a moment they could be gone. And this agricultural life, these were dominant metaphors, not only for how the world works and how we produce our food and how we sustain ourselves, but for how the soul works and the process of spiritual growth. So in the third century, we see writings like this. Become like the sun in your compassion and generosity. Or this one, like the night, cover up the shortcomings of others. Does that sound familiar? Like the rushing waters reach out to the entire world. And in the book of James, we hear these words, Humbly accept the word planted in you. Humbly accept the word planted in you. Or let's look for a moment at today's lectionary text from Isaiah chapter 55. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing 
for which I sent it. There is congruity with the way in which the natural, physical world works and the work of the spirit and the soul. Something has been planted in you. Something has been planted in you. Humbly receive the word planted in you. So you need to receive it. You need to care for it. You need to tend to it. But it will take time, and it will take patience, and it will take trust and hope, and it will take things that are outside of your control aligning in such a way that one day, after a lifetime of moments, something sprouts forth from the earth. So let's talk about this for a minute. Why it's important to talk about life in Christ, being faithful followers of Christ as a seed. So all of us, fortunately, are children of a modern era. So somewhere over the past 500 years, we have the invention of the machine. Now, historically, our ancestors used tools, things like axes and knives and hammers, things that made doing things easier. But machines with parts and pulleys and levers, this is a relatively new idea. And the idea of machines really took off right around the time Isaac Newton published Principia, which was basically this massive scientific volume that outlines the laws of physics, how the world works. It basically states that that all of creation, the universe, it operates and functions according to these set rules and laws, and there are people in this room much better equipped than I to talk about this topic. So there became this growing awareness that there are laws to nature and how all of this works. And at the same time, there was this mechanical view of the universe that things are spinning around other things, and they're spinning themselves. And it's like a big clock. And then you had actual mechanisms being invented. Let's take a look really quickly at one machine Does anyone have any guesses as to what this machine does? A printer, I heard. Any other guesses? Shucks corn. That's what we're doing here, my friend. We're shucking the corn. This is a picture of James Albert Bonsack's cigarette rolling machine invented in 1880. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Somebody spent a lot of time figuring out, how can I just not roll cigarettes anymore? (laughs) So turn a crank, pull a lever, push a button, spin a wheel, and all of a sudden, the birth of the modern era brought with it the machine. We don't need to look at that cigarette rolling machine anymore. Get that off there. So it brought with it the machine with mechanisms that when you pull a button or when you or pull a button, when you pull a lever or turn a crank or push a button, you get an instantaneous result. It's also with the birth of the machine that you get people start talking about instantaneous spiritual conversion. 
So with the explosion of machines and the centrality of machines, you start to get these assumptions among communities of faith that this must also be how the soul works. Pull a lever. Turn a crank. Push a button. Give me four steps. And if you do them at the end, this is the result. Now hear me, there is no lever. There is no switch when it comes to the soul. There's no on and off. Now hear me, because I do believe there are moments of radical shift. Moments of epiphany and revelation. But what I'm suggesting is that very rarely does a human being become a completely different human being in the blink of an eye. When it comes to your heart, your soul, and this journey of the Christian life of following Christ, it's you take a step. And then you take another step. Sometimes you take a step backwards. Sometimes you take a step to the left. And sometimes you take a step to the right. And this journey of becoming Christ followers looks a lot more like seeds and a lot less like switches. Just think about what has happened for most of us growing up in a world of switches. Just think for a moment about Netflix. How many of you right now have a phone in your pocket that has a Netflix app on it? Show of hands. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. So we just got a new TV, and it has this built-in thing on it called Casts. Do you know about Casts? It's amazing. Because I can take out my phone, which I wisely did not bring with me. I can take out my phone and open Netflix, and I can scroll through and find the show that I want to watch on my phone, and I push one button, and it streams it to my television, where it is tetherless, instantaneous, giving me my shows on my TV right now. But then sometimes the internet is running slowly. And so sometimes I push the button and what I see on my screen is not the show that I want to watch, but this spinning wheel that's loading and loading and loading. And suddenly... I am frustrated with something taking 10 seconds that didn't even exist 10 years ago. Do you hear me? We live in a world where we carry around thousands of songs, every picture we've ever taken in our entire life, and music and emails and text messages and all of these apps that do all of these things for us right in our pocket. And the slightest delays in our lives for most of us cause so much frustration. So think about how deeply this mechanical understanding of the universe and the development of a world that's full of cranks and levers and pulleys has affected the way that we think about things. Can you see how this can cause us to think unfaithfully about the work of Christ in our lives? Can you see how this way of thinking can be toxic for our souls? There is no switch for the soul only seeds, humbly accept the word planted in you. And understand, this may take a while. Maybe that becomes your new mantra this week. This may take a while. 
when you leave church this morning and you get in your car and somebody cuts you off and you still flip them off, this may take a while. When you get to Wednesday and realize you still haven't forgiven that person, this may take a while. A year from now, your blood's still boiling. This may take a while. Becoming faithful followers of Jesus Christ, (laughs) this may take a while. It's a journey of a thousand steps. Sometimes we step forward. Other times we step back. But even when we wander off the path, when we take too many steps to the right or too many steps to the left or way too many steps behind us, there's this awesome Hebrew word, teshuva. Say that with me because you would have been way more excited about that word if you know what it meant. So say it like you're excited even though you don't know what it means yet. Teshuva. Teshuva is this awesome Hebrew word for repentance that means to return. Which is to say that no matter how many steps you take off the path, you can always teshuva. You can always return back to that place that God has called you. You can always come back to the person you were created to be. You can always come back. You can always teshuva. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers and one of the first bishops of the church, he was captured by Roman soldiers in Asia Minor, and they forced him to march 1,500 miles back to Rome, where he would later be executed by being fed to lions. And over the course of those 1,500 miles, he was writing to the churches, and he's asking them to stay away, to not come and try to rescue him or to save him, because he's already prepared himself to run this race once, and he's not sure he can do it again. This may take a while. So there are some traditions that say Ignatius was one of the children that Jesus held and blessed. Timeline doesn't line up, but it's a great tradition. There are traditions that say Ignatius was one of the last people to personally know the apostles and had their hands laid on him as they consecrated him a bishop over the early church. Ignatius was 73 years old when he died, which was ancient for the ancient world. So having lived a long life and been a follower of Jesus from a very young age, in his last days, he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus and says, I am only beginning to be a disciple. This may take a while. Let's look at a couple of the other texts this week from the lectionary. In Genesis 25, we have this story of Abraham. And Abraham, as you all remember, was called to leave his nation to go and start a new nation, a nation that would bless the other nations. And Abraham's son, his name was Isaac, and Isaac married a woman named Rebekah. And when Isaac is 60 years old, Rebekah gives birth to twins. And that's where we pick up our story here in verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, 
And two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. And when her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. How many of you would love if your baby came that way and you're like, he was a hairy mantle. (laughs) And afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents, which is a really nice way of saying he was an inside kid. (laughs) Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Jacob was making soup, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, because apparently you don't know what soup's called, for I am famished. And Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So again, here we have Abraham's grandsons. We're just two generations away from the person that God made this covenant with, that he would start a new nation, a nation that blesses other nations, a nation that doesn't get to where they are by deception, by being somebody who they're not. And two generations into this work, we see these two people, Jacob and Esau, that are right back at the same practices, and this time over soup. This may take a while. But we know the rest of the story here. We know that God is faithful even when they are unfaithful. We know that God works through our messes even when the messes of our own making. God's promises take time. God's promise to Abraham was two generations in the making. We don't even have the imagination for that. We want what God has promised us right now. What if the thing that God has promised you isn't going to be realized until your great-grandkids? Are you willing to still be faithful throughout your lifetime to cultivate those kinds of seeds in your life? even though you may not realize the harvest. So the seed that was planted in Abraham was still growing and still taking root. And then in Genesis 27, Jacob approaches his father, pretending to be Esau. He's in the process of stealing his birthright, and he says to his father, I am Esau. So even Jacob's identity was at stake in this process. A little later in Genesis 32, Jacob, having just wrestled with God, answers God by telling him, I am Jacob. I am Esau. I am Jacob. See, there is a point in our struggle of the cultivating these things and figuring out these thousand small steps. There is a point 
when you start to become more and more comfortable in your own skin. Because you're becoming more and more the person God intended you to be. I am Jacob. One last story for you this morning. In 1926, the last wolves in Yellowstone National Park were killed. And for 70 years, there were nearly no wolves present in all of Yellowstone. And then, in 1995, the first handful of gray wolves were reintroduced back into the park. And here's what happened next. Since wolves had been absent for over 70 years, the deer population in Yellowstone was booming. And because of that, most of the vegetation in the park was gone. They had just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, they had this incredible effect on the deer. Obviously, they killed some of the deer, but more fascinating was that it actually changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding areas of the park where they were more easily trapped. They stayed away from places like the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the heights of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, birds started moving in. Songbirds and migratory bird populations started to increase. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers love to eat the trees. And just like wolves, beavers are ecosystem engineers, creating niches for other species. The dams that they built in the rivers provided habitats for otters, muskrats, and ducks, and fish, and reptiles, and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes, so as a result, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, badgers. Ravens and bald eagles moved in to the park to come and feed on the carcasses that the wolves left behind. And bears fed on them too, and their population also began to rise, partly because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. The increased number of bears also reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here is where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They started to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools started to form. More riffle sections. All of this because the regenerating forests stabilized the riverbeds, so they collapsed less often. The rivers became more fixed in their course, and similarly, because the deer were kept out of the valleys and the gorges, the vegetation recovery on those areas stabilized the mountains. This small number of wolves didn't just change the ecosystem of Yellowstone, they changed this huge area of land's physical geography. What if this is the work of faith in our lives? That the more room we make for God's work, the more God starts to do this long 
slow work of making us into who we were always intended to be? What if faith works its way into our lives like a wolf in Yellowstone, slowly but surely changing the very geography of our souls, the very makeup of what makes us human? What if faith is less like switches and more like seeds? What if we've only begun to be his disciples? Amen.